0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hey everyone, it's Amit Goyal. Welcome to a Cardio Nerds Case Report. This one's brought to you by colleagues at Northwestern University. NU is a member of the CardioNerds Healy Honorary Program, the list of programs which support our mission to democratize cardiovascular education. And we are so grateful to Dr. Benjamin Freed, Fellowship Program Director, for his support. This case discussion was organized by our FIT ambassador from the institution, Dr. Loey Farina, and her co-fellows, Dr. Josh Chima and Dr. Graham Pei, with the ECPR provided by Dr. Yasmin Raza. Audio editing was performed by Unit's Inter and student Dr. Christian Faburg Andersen. This fabulous and multifaceted case touches on several high yield and fascinating areas, including the evaluation and causes of non ischemic cardiomyopathy, a proactive approach to advanced heart failure, diagnosis and management of cardiogenic shock, and the utility of the shock team call. But before we dive into this awesome discussion, we are so proud to introduce Dr. Leanne Arsenis as CardiNerd's FIT trialist. You might recall that the CardiNerd's Clinical Trials Network was created with a mission to pair equitable trial enrollment with FIT personal and professional development. We have so far recruited 15 CardiNerd's FIT trialists and matching PI mentors from across America and Canada to support enrollment for Paraglide HF with mentorship from lead PI Dr. Robert Mentz. Cardinans fit are nominated by site PIs for their accomplishments, academic inclinations, and of course, their nerdiness. Dr. Leanne Arcenas was nominated by Dr. Shelley Zierath to represent the University of Manitoba. Leanne, welcome to the Cardiners family, especially as the very first to join the family from outside of the U.S. Would you please introduce yourself and share what you're most excited about as part of this program?
2: Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Leanne Arsinas. I am currently the Chief PJY6 Cardiology Fellow at the University of Manitoba from Winnipeg, Canada. I was born in the Philippines and moved here when I was 16, where I subsequently finished my undergrad, medical school, and internal medicine residency training. I'm planning to pursue a career in cardiac electrophysiology. I am so delighted and honored to be the first Canadian Nurse Fellow in Training Fit Trialist. What I'm most excited about is collaborating with my co-fellows across the states and Canada and to learn more about their unique perspectives on patient care and enrollment in clinical trials. I'm also so excited to learn from incredible mentors and PIs on how it's like to conduct clinical trials as this is something that not many of us get to experience during our training. So thanks and congratulations to you, Amit, Dan, and the rest of the Party Nerds family and the steering committee of Paraglide HF for starting this amazing initiative.
3: Well, Leanne, what an incredible story and we are so excited and thank you so much for your kind words. Part of the CardioNerd's mission is to provide mentorship and sponsorship. It's something that's so important to us and really critical for the Clinical Trials Program project. So could you talk to us a little bit about the importance of mentorship in your professional development and how your experience has been working with your mentor PI, Dr. Shelly Zirath?
2: Thanks, Dan, absolutely. I have been blessed with the opportunity to work with excellent mentors throughout my training, and Dr. Zarek has definitely been one of them. As you know, she is the immediate past president of the Canadian Heart Failure Society, and she has been involved in numerous clinical heart failure trials. She's also a very proud hashtag women in cardiology, and is the current president of the Federation of Medical Women of Canada. So as you could imagine, to have this opportunity to work with her in Paraglide HF and to learn about the ins and outs of conducting clinical trials and breaking invisible barriers in career development is truly a very inspiring experience for me. It truly helped fuel my passion for pursuing a well-rounded career in cardiac electrophysiology as a woman and as a person of color. I think I speak on behalf of all the FIT trialists when I say that we profoundly appreciate the opportunity to work with our extraordinary mentor PIs. I truly believe that this experience will not only help us build our strong clinical research foundation, but also positively impact our lifelong personal and professional development.
3: Leanne, thank you so much for that and for your work as a FIT trialist. And we are really excited for the value that you bring to the whole group.
2: Thanks very much again for having me, and I'm really looking forward to today's episode.
3: Remember, Cardi Nerds is an independently fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to collect free COB using the link in the episode description. And do be a nerd. Spread the word by rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast app, and more importantly, by telling your friends, family, and colleagues about the show.
1: And now, time to get nerdy. Hey, Cardio Nerds. Welcome back. We're going to discuss today a phenomenal case. Join us for a trip back to Chicago as we learn from our co-fellows, Dr. Loe Farina, Dr. Josh Chima, and Dr. Graham Pei. Guys, would you introduce yourselves to the audience?
4: Hi, everyone. I'm Loi Farina. I am a third-year cardiology fellow, and I am planning on going into advanced heart failure and transplant.
5: Hey, everyone. I'm Josh Chima. Like Loi, I'm a third-year cardiology fellow at Northwestern, and I'm planning to go into advanced heart failure and transplant next
0: year. Hey, guys. My name is Graham Pei. I'm a first-year cardiology fellow at Northwestern, and I think I'm going to be going into EP.
3: Loie, Josh, Graham, what a pleasure to be back in Chicago. So set the stage for some seriously amazing cardiology and take us to your favorite chill session in Chicago so we can enjoy this
1: beautiful Sunday together.
4: We are uh, relaxing on North Avenue Beach, trying to soak up the last remaining days of summer.
1: Wow, that sounds absolutely gorgeous, Loey. You know, we've been talking about this case and getting it on the show for such a long time. It's such a privilege to learn from this unique case. Why don't we get started? What do we have to discuss here? So
0: today, guys, we're going to be discussing a 52-year-old female with long-standing but stable limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis that's been complicated by telangiectasias, GERD, and ILD, who initially presented two months ago. And at that point, she actually had a year-long history of gradual onset shortness of breath, fatigue, and a 20-pound weight loss. So this is a long case, and she had a very thorough workup that was completed two months ago. This showed a decline in her PFTs along with a high-res CT that demonstrated findings consistent with nonspecific interstitial pneumonia. An echo done at that time showed a left ventricular ejection fraction of 40% with normal left ventricular size and wall thickness and indeterminate diastolic function a cardiac MR was performed that showed reduced biventricular function with global left ventricular hypokinesis and mild pericardial thickening. And then to cap it off, she had a right and left heart cath that showed mild non-obstructive coronary disease, normal LVEDP, pulmonary arterial hypertension, and uh, preserved cardiac output. So two months ago, she was started on mycophenolate mofetil for scleroderma-associated ILD. And she was simultaneously diagnosed with a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy that was presumed to be from her systemic sclerosis. She was discharged on low-dose diuretic and guideline-directed medical therapy, including a beta blocker and ACE. Now, she represents with worsening, dyspnea on exertion, and orthopnea. Her exercise tolerance is down to only 15 or 20 steps, and she can no longer go up a flight of stairs. Associated symptoms at this point include occasional palpitations and a cough with scant phlegm, and she doesn't have any fevers or chills or sick contacts. Now to take a step back and go through a little bit more of her past medical, social, and family history, she's had a past surgical history that's notable for a fibroidectomy. Her family history is notable for her mother, who has psoriasis and hyperlipidemia, her father, who had a stroke, diabetes, and kidney cancer. However, she doesn't have any family history of heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, or premature coronary disease. Her social history is notable for very rare alcohol use and no tobacco or illicit drug use. And the medications she's on right now include aspirin 81 daily, furosemide 40 milligrams twice a day, lisinopril 5 milligrams daily, metoprolol succinate 25 milligrams daily, mycophenolate mofetil, 1500 milligrams twice a day and omeprazole 20 milligrams twice a day. She does not have any allergies. Wow. So that's a lot. And at this point, uh, Loie, I would love for you to help explain how scleroderma affects the heart and why we think that she may have uh, a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy from scleroderma.
4: Absolutely. Thanks for providing all of her history for us. So scleroderma is a connective tissue disorder that's characterized by extracellular matrix deposition with widespread fibrosis of the skin and visceral organs, microvascular injury, and evidence of immune system activation. Cardiac involvement is common, although likely underestimated, as it is often subclinical and the estimated prevalence varies widely. Myocardial involvement is identified in up to 80% of patients in histological studies and clinical myocardial dysfunction is recognized in 15 to 25 percent. When clinically evident, cardiac involvement unfortunately portends a poor prognosis with an up to 70 percent mortality at five years. Approximately 25 percent of all scleroderma-related deaths are due to cardiac causes. Primary involvement is thought to be mediated by repeated focal ischemic reperfusion injury, impaired microcirculation, inflammation, and eventual focal irreversible fibrosis leading to heart failure and arrhythmias. Cardiac involvement can also occur secondary to lung or renal disease, pulmonary arterial hypertension, or other cardiovascular risk factors. The main cardiac manifestations include arrhythmias and conduction disorders, pericarditis and pericardial effusions, valvular involvement, and diastolic dysfunction. This is frequently reported but less commonly associated with diastolic heart failure. Systolic dysfunction can also occur, but severe systolic dysfunction is rare.
1: Lloyd, thanks for taking us through that. And I have to say, for the longest time, I was confused about the nomenclature for scleroderma, right, or systemic sclerosis. But I think it's just helpful to remember that there are two main variants. Limited scleroderma, which is essentially the Crest syndrome that we think about, where the skin thickening is pretty much limited to the hands and the face, generally speaking. And the diffuse systemic sclerosis. Where you have more extensive skin involvement and then also generally more visceral organ involvement. So with the limited form or the Crest syndrome, the cardiovascular issue that we worry about is pulmonary arterial hypertension, which sounds like this patient has from the history that Graham laid out so well. This is something definitely to evaluate patients for and ends up being an important part of the prognosis determination for these patients. And with the diffuse systemic sclerosis, you can get ILD, renal involvement. Then you beautifully talked about all the different cardiovascular manifestations. And I hadn't realized, you know, earlier when I learned about this disease, all the different ways that it can affect the heart. And, you know, when we think about the different types of cardiac failure, it really is so pervasive. It can affect everything, right? So if you have myocardial failure causing diastolic, even systolic dysfunction, pericardial failure, we can have pericardial thickening, pericarditis effusion, even constrictive pericarditis conduction abnormalities, right? So electrical failure, microvascular involvement, so coronary failure. Valvular heart disease is usually less involved and less prominent a feature, but you can even get thickening and valvular dysfunction as well. So really, I think it's a fascinating disease that I think we're just starting to learn about in terms of its overlap with the cardiovascular system.
4: Thanks for taking us through that. I think you did a really good job of summarizing.
1: Well, bit. I mean, I, I actually really used to get confused about systemic sclerosis. and
4: It is confusing.
1: Guys,
0: it seems like we have a lot of potential complications to look out for here. Let's take a run through this patient's physical exam. Vital signs wise, the patient was afebrile with a temperature of 98.5 degrees Fahrenheit, but tachycardic at 116 beats per minute. Blood pressure was 99 over 71, breathing 18 times per minute and satting 96% on room air. The physical exam is notable for facial telangiectasias. An elevated JVP at 14 centimeters above the right atrium. Non-labored respirations, but decreased breath sounds on the right. And with respect to her heart specifically, patient is tachycardic, but has a regular rhythm, normal S1 and S2, and no audible murmurs. Abdomen is soft and non-tender without any rebound. And the patient's extremities demonstrate sclerodactyly. They're warm and have one plus pitting edema bilaterally. Patients alert and oriented with no focal deficits and importantly, looks very comfortable. So Josh, we have these vital signs here and we have this physical exam and I'm initially concerned, but what would your specific thoughts be? Thanks, Graham, for getting me involved here. You know, I
5: think the vital signs are concerning, especially when you see the heart rate elevated to 116 and the blood pressure is borderline low, but the pulse pressure is starting to narrow. And then there's some other signs that the patient may be in stress specifically from their heart. JVP is elevated to 14, and then there's lower extremity edema. So overall, this makes me worry that they're in heart failure and they may be heading towards cardiovascular collapse, especially with that heart rate. That's really something that I look for early on in the course to see, you know, which way are we
0: heading? Josh, that's great. And taking it a step further, are there any specific labs that you'd be interested in here?
5: Yeah, that's great. You know, I think we need the basics. You need the complete blood count, you need the chemistry panel. I want to see how the kidneys are functioning. I want to see how the liver is doing. I want to see how the sodium is trending. I want to know about signs of end organ perfusion. In addition to the kidneys and the liver, I want to look at the lactate. And I would get a troponin and a BNP to
0: just sort of get an overall picture as to what's going on. Josh, ask and ye shall receive. Let me go through some of those labs for you. So CBC is relatively unremarkable, hemoglobin of 12.4, no leukocytosis and normal platelet count. For a chem panel, sodium is 136, so normal. Creatinine is 0.75, which is at the patient's baseline. LFT-wise, AST and ALT are both normal. Bilirubin is also normal, and the patient's albumin is 4. The patient's lactate is borderline at 1.8. BNP is 12.59 troponin is ever so slightly elevated at 0.09. Josh, did I give you everything you asked for? Yeah, those are all the labs I
5: want, Graham. And just taking a quick moment to reflect on those labs, I would say that I'm not any more reassured than I would be just from the physical exam. You know, I'm appropriately worried, I think, because of the tachycardia and the narrow pulse pressure. I think these are better labs than seeing signs of
0: clear-cut end-organ damage, but there's enough here that sort of makes you worried overall. Great. Thanks, Josh. So let's go through some additional diagnostics now. The patient has a chest x-ray that shows a moderate right and trace left pleural effusion, along with mild hyalur venous congestion. And my favorite diagnostic study, the EKG, demonstrates sinus tach with frequent PVCs in a pattern of bigeminy, as well as a fusion complex. And notably, the patient has normal voltage. Now we're going to move on to the echo, and I'm hoping, Josh, you can take us through that of course, Graham. So we get an echocardiogram, we get it with Doppler to do a comprehensive study.
5: Looking at the left ventricle, it's normal in size. There's no evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy, but the systolic function is severely reduced. Ejection fraction is 21%, significantly lower than it was before. And the global longitudinal strain is 6%. Looking at the pattern of strain, we see some evidence of apical sparing. The ratio of the strain at the apex to the rest of the heart, the mid and the basal segments, is 32 the RV looks mildly dilated, mildly dysfunctional. We see the interventricular septum bowing over, so it looks like there's some RV pressure and volume overload. And the left ventricular diastolic function is severely reduced. It's grade three diastolic dysfunction. The E to A is greater than two. And notably, the tissue Doppler velocities are very low. The lateral E prime is five centimeters per second. Septal E prime is three centimeters per second. So just taking a step back and looking at this echocardiogram in the context of the patient's story so far, what does this make you think, Louie?
4: You know, I think it's a little bit challenging because this echo, while extremely concerning, is still fairly nonspecific in terms of etiology. Certainly, as I mentioned, in scleroderma, severe systolic dysfunction of this magnitude is relatively uncommon and would make me reconsider or reevaluate the differential diagnosis at this point for her non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Similarly, I think we initially thought that perhaps a pulmonary arterial hypertension was largely driving her clinical picture with perhaps mild systolic dysfunction on top of that. Clearly here that is not the case. She likely has some pulmonary arterial hypertension, but the degree of systolic dysfunction obviously cannot be explained by that. So I think we kind of have to go back to the drawing board. Now, the apical sparing that we see on straight makes us think amyloid often. However, there are some unusual features for amyloid in this case. There's no left ventricular hypertrophy. And similarly, the degree of systolic dysfunction is more significant than we often would see in amyloid.
1: Loe, I completely agree with you. I think this echocardiogram adds a lot of information in terms of the patient's current structural issues and hemodynamics, but it really is, is mixed in terms of the ideology of this problem. Clearly, there's left-sided disease, you know, maybe with a cherry on top, with a reduced global longitudinal strain with apical sparing, one might consider cardiac amyloidosis. But as Graham pointed out, there's no low voltage on EKG. And while not every patient has to have low voltage, this patient also doesn't have LV hypertrophy. You know, there is this small pericardial effusion that can be seen with amyloidosis, but that can also be seen with pulmonary hypertension, which this patient also has. You know, could this be some sort of other restrictive cardiomyopathy that doesn't involve hypertrophy, right? Because if we think about restricted cardiomyopathy, is it infiltrative? Is it storage disorders? And those come with hypertrophy. But here, maybe this is something like that. But again, like you pointed out, typically you wouldn't have this degree of systolic dysfunction unless this is totally end stage, which again, you know, this patient has had symptoms for quite some time, this may be, you know, and in terms of severe pulmonary hypertension causing RV failure, severe TR, et cetera, there is substantial LV dysfunction as well. So a lot to out, this echo helps us understand what's going on, but not necessarily in terms of the ideology. Graham, how did you approach this patient in real time?
0: You know, I think at this point, what was really important was to see how the patient was actually doing at this point after the echo was obtained to see kind of the urgency at which further diagnostics were needed.
5: Sounds like my pager's going off. Graham, we were diuresing our patient, trying to get some of the extra volume off that we saw, but we're alerted by the nurse that they're not doing so well. Blood pressure is further reduced, 70 over 50. Heart rate's 118 beats per minute, and they're setting 93% on room air. And so as we're running over to see our patient, we get word that our labs are back as well. This is a new set compared to before. Looking at the chemistry compared to before, the sodium is lower. It's 133. Creatinine is slightly elevated at 1.01. The LFTs are starting to go up. AST is 74, ALT is 68, and the T-billies 2.1. On our last set of blood work, all of these were normal. Our troponin is still mildly elevated, but now is 0.12. BMP is still in the 1100s. And now our lactate is positive at 3.3. At this point, we decide we need more information, specifically invasive information. So we do a right heart catheterization. And we plan to do an endomyocardial biopsy because it's just not clear what is causing the cardiac dysfunction we see right now? Getting our right heart cath findings, we see that the RA pressure is 14, the RV is 58 over 11 with a EDV of 17, the PA is 58 over 28 with a mean PA pressure of 42. Our wedge is 26, our SVO2 is 38%, our cardiac output is 1.88 liters per minute by thermal and the cardiac index is 1.24. Our PVR is 8.5 Woods units and our transpulmonary gradient is 22. So there's a lot of data here to go through, but sort of thinking through this systematically, we see that from this right heart cath findings, we have severely elevated biventricular filling pressure. So our RA is significantly elevated and our wedge is up. There's clear evidence of pulmonary hypertension that seems to be both mixed pre- and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension from left-sided heart disease. And our cardiac index is severely reduced in the scary range at 1.24. And our SVO2 fits that
0: with a 38% SVO2. Wow, Josh, those numbers are something. And I just finished my first month in the cath lab. And if I shot these numbers, I'd be really concerned. But Loi, you've had so much more experience in the cath lab than I have. What would you be thinking in terms of next steps?
4: I think in this patient who's hypotensive, has evidence of end organ dysfunction, and has hemodynamics that are consistent with cardiogenic shock, the next step really is to call a shock call to get all all the important team members on the line to really figure out the next steps. So what is a shock team? A multidisciplinary shock team is composed of advanced heart failure specialists, cardiac surgery, interventional cardiology, and critical care. It facilitates timely consultation and decision making. Observational studies suggest that a shock team approach may actually improve cardiogenic shock outcomes. There was a 2019 study published in JAK that evaluated the impact of a standardized team based approach in 204 patients with cardiogenic shock. And they found that the 30-day survival in 2017 and 2018 was 57.9% and 76.6% compared with a 30-day survival of 47% in 2016. So after implementation of their shock team protocol, 30-day survival significantly improved. I think that in this case, while the patient's still on the table, it would be appropriate to call a shock call to figure out whether the patient should be started on inotropes or perhaps needs mechanical circulatory support. And in this case, I think the next steps after a shock team discussion was to do a trial of inotropes.
1: And I just want to piggyback on that, Lori. I couldn't agree with you more. The value of a multidisciplinary team to kind of put our heads together and decide the best route of management is so vital because cardiogenic shock, I think, is one of the most challenging things that we see. It is so heterogeneous. And over the past few decades, our approaches, our management strategies, the devices, pharmacotherapy have improved drastically. But in our CCUs, once a patient develops cardiogenic shock, unfortunately, their outcomes haven't really changed. The mixture of patients and the etiologies of shock may have changed, but their outcomes have not. And I just want to put a plug in for the sky shock staging, the classification they went in with two primary goals. One was to improve communication across everyone involved with that patient care, right? Whether you're transferring from hospital to hospital with a hop-and-spoke model or the entire interdisciplinary team. And then also to essentially classify these patients with more resolution so that way we can research their outcomes and develop essentially a, a more consistent way of categorizing these patients. I think additional benefits are, you know, why is the prognosis still so grim and why haven't we made tangible improvements is probably partly because we have a very difficult time in predicting what's going to happen with an individual patient, right? You've got two patients who both have evidence of cardiogenic shock, for whom are escalating therapies, whether it's a vasoactive infusion, mechanical circulatory support, high-risk interventions, for whom are those high-risk interventions going to change prognosis, and for whom are they not going to change prognosis? And then additionally, at what point do you need to intervene? Because I, I think also not being able to recognize shock early enough and intervening too late is another reason. Where the patient starts to compensate and you start getting into the inflammatory stage of cardiogenic shock and multi-organ dysfunction, and you've already predetermined a prognosis that's going to be very hard to reverse. And so what they've done is they've created a model of a five-staging system that was inspired by the NYHA or the Intermax system. So stage A, a for A, at risk, where you neither have hemodynamic changes or hypoperfusion. Stage B is the beginning stages of shock, where you have hypotension, tachycardia, the hemodynamics of shock, but not the end-organ hypoperfusion. So when this patient first presented to us tachycardic, relatively hypotensive, but with a normal lactate, probably was stage B. But early on, you know, Graham and Josh, you guys noticed that, hey, this is uh, highly concerning. Stage C is a classic cardiogenic shock, where you have hypoperfusion without deterioration. Our patient is probably here right now, stage C, classic cardiogenic shock. We need to figure out what to do. Sounds like the team decided to start inotropes and see how the patient would respond. Stage D is deteriorating or doom, phase of shock, where you have hyperperfusion with deterioration that is worsening despite your initial strategy. So if this patient starts worsening despite our inotrope of choice, then that would potentially be stage D and stage E is extremis where things are worsening and it's obviously extreme end-stage situation. But I I think going through the staging system and and thinking where my patient stands is really helpful. And probably the best example of that would be in a cath lab, right? Because things change so quickly and we need to identify, is a patient at risk? Do I need upfront mechanical circulatory support to take them through a high-risk intervention? Is the patient looking like they're going to worsen? Are they worsening? What do I need to do in real time? And those decisions sometimes have to be made on on a dime's notice. I
3: don't know, Dan, would you agree with that? I completely agree with that. Early recognition is critical. Having that staging system that really helps us all get on the same page and same language is absolutely critical. And then earlier, you know, we mentioned that the shock team is just absolutely essential. We also have to have things that we can deploy right away to help the patient return perfusion back to those end organs. So Josh, I'm really glad you all involved the shock team and I'm very interested. I'm sitting at the edge of my seat. You have this patient who's in cardiogenic shock, biventricular failure, congested and poor forward flow. I'm really interested to hearing your first inotrope of choice or your inotrope strategy as you called the shock team, discuss the options, and then what you guys did for either further treatment or further diagnostics.
5: Absolutely. So the very first thing we did, we wanted to stabilize the blood pressure. The patient was started on Levafed while we we're thinking through what are the next steps? How do we get them out of cardiogenic shock? And with LevaFet alone, the blood pressure did come up to a safer range than it was. The shock call, we weighed through all of the options, namely mechanical circulatory support, including an impella or an intra-aortic balloon pump or inotrope therapy. And because our patient did start to do better on just the LevaFet alone, we wanted to give a chance to add an inotrope before adding mechanical circulatory support and to see how she did. And thankfully, by adding milrinone, she stabilized. The cardiac index came up, the wedge came down, and her signs of end organ function improved, namely with a lactate starting to normalize. Another thing that we talked about on the shot call and in the cath lab was how do we get more information about what exactly is going on uh, and the need specifically for an endomyocardial biopsy. With our patient specifically, she had several weeks of high-risk features and getting sicker from her cardiomyopathy, but now it seemed like she was rapidly progressing. And there was a chance that the information that we could obtain from the biopsy, namely, was there an infiltrative process going on like systemic amyloidosis, or could we find evidence of scleroderma? There was information that we could find that would change our management and allow her to treat her more specifically. So we went forward and got an endomyocardial biopsy that had some very interesting results. It showed evidence of vascular amyloidosis. But interestingly, there was no amyloid deposited within the interstitium. So at this point, the possibility of cardiac amyloidosis, of course, is entertained. But there was no evidence of amyloid within the interstitium itself, which is highly unusual for a patient that has cardiac amyloidosis. Although we saw some evidence of amyloid within the vasculature, the primary etiology was still felt to be scleroderma. We, at this point, got a cardiac MRI to reevaluate cardiac structure and function. The LV continued to be normal in size and showed no evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy. The EF was severely reduced, even lower than before at 11%. There was a transmural perfusion defect through the entire septum, as well as a subendocardial perfusion defect in the inferior wall and the mid and basal infralateral wall. Overall, this was felt to be not in a vascular territory. There was subendocardial delayed enhancement seen in the basal to mid septum, the septum, the infroinfrolateral wall, as well as delayed enhancement in the anterior and posterior papillary muscles. There's so no evidence of myocardial edema. The ECB was elevated at 42% to suggest diffuse myocardial fibrosis. The left and right atrium were moderately enlarged. The RV was normal in size, but severely reduced in function with an RV EF of 7% and there continued to be a mild pericardial effusion. So Loi, thinking about this MRI and thinking about scleroderma and amyloid cardiomyopathy, what are the key MRI findings for those conditions and how does this sort of fit?
4: So first, I just want to briefly review a few key concepts in cardiac MR. Native T1 signals are increased by edema, as in acute infarction, and an increase in interstitial space, as in fibrosis or amyloid. T1 signals are decreased by lipid and iron overload. Gadolinium contrast agents are distributed throughout the extracellular space and shorten the T1 relaxation times of myocardium in proportion to the local concentrations of gadolinium. So areas of fibrosis and scar will exhibit shorter T1 relaxation times due to higher gadolinium proportions. The extracellular volume, or ECV, fraction is calculated using myocardial and blood T1 times before and after contrast is administered. It serves as a marker of myocardial tissue remodeling. ECV is increased in amyloid and excessive collagen deposition and serves as a robust marker of myocardial fibrosis. Late gadolinium enhancement, or LGE, depicts a relative difference in the T1 recovery times between enhancing areas of fibrosis or scar, where T1 is shortened due to accumulation of extracellular gadolinium contrast, and normal nulled myocardium, where the T1 is longer as the gadolinium contrast was more rapidly washed out. And finally, T2 weighted imaging is sensitive to regional or global increases in myocardial water content, as in edema. So, now that we have that background, uh, let's talk specifically about scleroderma findings. So, in scleroderma, we often see perfusion defects. These are predominantly stress perfusion abnormalities. They occur less commonly at rest. There's also typically an increased signal intensity on T2 weighted sequences, an increase in the ECV. Delayed enhancement that spares the endocardium and is mainly linear and typically mid wall. And then importantly, cardiac MRI can really help us with getting an accurate assessment of RB function, which can be particularly challenging on echo sometimes and is very important in these patients due to the risk of PAH. In amyloid, we tend to see T1 signal abnormalities, an increase in the ECB, and classically, global subendocardial LGE in a non coronary distribution. However, LGE can also be diffuse and transmural or more localized and patchy. I think it's also important to note that LGE in the setting of cardiac amyloidosis is associated with increased mortality. Lastly, another classic finding is difficulty nulling the myocardium, where the myocardium appears similar to the blood pool. Myocardial nulling refers to an inversion recovery pulse sequence that is used to null the signal from a desired tissue in order to accentuate surrounding pathology. Normally, the blood pool nulls before the myocardium, but in amyloid, myocardium nulls simultaneously or before the blood pool. So to summarize, I think that the cardiac MRI in this case gives us a lot of information, although it's still a little bit nonspecific with findings that can be seen both in cardiac amyloidosis and in systemic sclerosis, or potentially even in an alternate etiology. I think because of this diagnostic uncertainty, additional workup was pursued. Graham, would you mind taking us through that?
0: Yeah, of course, Lowy, But before I do, thank you so much for taking us through that tour de force of cardiac MR. I feel like I was sitting in a uh, noon conference and imaging fellowship there. So let's go through some additional diagnostics. Because amyloid is being so highly considered, we got serum immunofixation that showed a monoclonal free lambda light chain. Free kappa was 1.47, while free lambda was 52.8, yielding a ratio of only 0.03. We also got a UPEP that showed 423 milligrams of total protein with 79 milligrams of albumin and a restricted band in the gamma region. Finally, immunofixation on the UPET was with free lambda. A bone marrow biopsy was then performed that showed 20% plasma cells that were lambda-restricted. And finally, we performed a nuclear medicine cardiac amyloid scan or a technetium pyrophosphate scan that was equivocal for TTR cardiac amyloid And the formal read said that it could represent AL amyloid or early TTR amyloid.
1: Grant, this is extremely interesting in terms of what could be going on with this patient. And it will all tie into what the best management approach will be. But I, you know, just as a listener, hearing about how this case is unfolding? I am so confused about what's actually going on. But just to wrap our mind around this a little bit, you know, this patient has subacute progressive biventricular cardiomyopathy now, essentially presenting in cardiogenic shock. Right? That's her clinical phenotype. In terms of the etiology, we have sort of a nothing pathognomonic on echo or CMR, other than to say that she's got myocardial level damage on both sides of her heart, as well as pulmonary arterial hypertension, and appropriately so. Because she is deteriorating and we don't know why, we did a myocardial biopsy that surprisingly, if you will, showed that there's amyloid deposition just within the vasculature itself, right? Out within the other tissue layers, not within the interstitium, just within the vessels, which I hadn't heard about before. But, you know, why would that be? And just thinking about the different variants of amyloid within the heart, again, this isn't necessarily interstitial, but within the heart, over 96% will be cardiac AL amyloidosis or a transthyretin amyloidosis with a smaller proportions being from HL-natriuretic peptide or serum amyloid A. And then you went on the hunt to figure out, well, what is this amyloid variant? And it sounds like we're waiting for mass spectroscopy to identify this abnormal protein that's deposited in her biopsy, but you're looking at other biomarkers to figure out what is the abnormal protein that's depositing in her vessels that's potentially causing all these problems, right? And so you got the PYP scan, which was equivocal. And of course, can be positive for AL or TTR, but is usually more specific for TTR cardiac amyloidosis. In the right clinical setting, this is not the clinical setting that that scan was validated for in terms of getting its positive predictive value, right? But then you've got the markers for gammopathy, and they are very abnormal, right? So you know from your serum-free light chains, your SPEP, UPEP, and immunofixation studies that this patient has a lambda-restricted monoclonal plasma cell population. And and at 20% in the bone marrow, this patient at the very least has a smoldering myeloma. And so you have a cancer diagnosis that will require treatment and follow-up. But, but the question is, how is this related to the amyloid deposition in the vascular bed? And how do you manage that to get this patient out of trouble? Graham, how did the story unfold?
0: Thanks so much. I feel like you summarized our thought process really, really well there. There's so many different things going on, yet we still have this patient in front of us we need to treat. So I'm going to go through that a little bit. So fortunately, she did improve and was discharged on spironolactone as well as midodrine. Unfortunately, she was unable to tolerate any further GDMT due to hypotension. At the time of discharge, as you mentioned, the etiology of her non-ischemic cardiomyopathy was still pretty unclear. Was it progressive scleroderma versus AL amyloid versus something else? We, we really weren't able to put a finger on it. And there was uncertainty about the clinical significance of vascular amyloid in the absence of any sort of interstitial involvement. So she was fortunately able to be discharged home with follow-up. So while she was awaiting her expedited oncologic follow-up, she was unfortunately readmitted to RCCU with profound dyspnea. While in RCCU, she did suffer from a cardiac arrest. However, she did achieve ROSC. After achieving ROSC, She underwent emergent VA ECMO cannulation, followed by durable LVAD and temporary RVAD insertion. Unfortunately, she did pass away shortly thereafter from postoperative hemorrhage. In the postmortem time period, fiber typing using mass spectroscopy was performed on the endomyocardial biopsy, and this did confirm the diagnosis of AL-lambda-type amyloid deposition. Furthermore, both the cardiac apex and lung wedge that were resected during the bad placement showed vascular amyloid deposition without any sort of interstitial involvement. So this led us to our final diagnosis of cardiac AL amyloidosis with isolated vascular involvement. And I know I speak on behalf of Lowy and Josh when I say I, I certainly wish we had come to this diagnosis sooner. When this relatively young woman, unfortunately, met her demise due to this condition, Loe, I'm hoping that we can use this as a learning opportunity so we can potentially think of this sooner in future cases. Can you tell us what you know about this rare condition?
4: Absolutely, Graham. So first, I just want to give an overview of amyloidosis. As we all know, it's a process in which proteins misfold, aggregate, and form amyloid fibrils that deposit in various organs. The most common types of cardiac amyloidosis are AL and TTR. AL amyloidosis is a hematologic disorder of clonal plasma cells that overproduce light chains that commonly deposit in the heart and kidneys. Unfortunately, delayed diagnoses are very common, with an estimated one-third of patients visiting five or more physicians before receiving the diagnosis. Cardiac involvement with heart failure portends a particularly poor prognosis, with a median survival from onset of heart failure of less than six months without treatment. Stem cell transplantation has been shown to improve survival if performed prior to the diagnosis of advanced heart failure, but unfortunately about 80% of patients are not candidates for aggressive therapy due to advanced stage of disease. In cardiac amyloidosis, amyloid deposits infiltrate and expand the extracellular space, which results in increased ventricular wall thickness and classically manifests as restrictive cardiomyopathy with a relatively preserved EF. However, a subset of patients may present with reduced LBEF and minimal or no ventricular wall thickening. And this is a presentation that's actually more common in patients with AL cardiac amyloidosis as opposed to TTR. AL patients tend to have a greater severity of heart failure Than TTR, despite less morphological involvement in terms of LV wall thickness. So, there are some additional mechanisms that are thought to play a major contributing role in cardiac AL amyloidosis. First, circulating light chains cause direct cardiotoxicity through cardiomyocyte oxidant stress and abnormal vascular reactivity, which impairs vasodilation. In addition, vascular amyloid deposition in the small intramural coronary vessels results in microvascular dysfunction and global myocardial ischemia. Vascular involvement is common in AL cardiac amyloidosis, much more common than in TTR cardiac amyloid. Pathology study demonstrated obstructive intramural coronary amyloidosis in 63 of 96 patients, so about 66%. And 86% of these patients had microscopic evidence of myocardial ischemia. I think it is important to note, though, that isolated vascular involvement, such as we saw in our patient, is rare. In the study I mentioned, 97% of patients had interstitial involvement. To summarize, coronary microvascular dysfunction can occur via three mechanisms in amyloidosis. There's structural, with amyloid deposition in the vessel wall causing wall thickening and luminal stenosis, extravascular, through extrinsic compression of the microvasculature from perivascular and interstitial amyloid deposits and decreased diastolic perfusion, and functional, through autonomic and endothelial dysfunction. I think it's really important to highlight these variety of pathophysiologic mechanisms and emphasize the fact that the absence of increased wall thickness does not exclude cardiac amyloidosis. We really need to maintain a high index of suspicion. The diagnosis in this case was challenging because of the unusual presentation of an already uncommon condition. Interestingly, amyloid vascular deposition was also noted in the patient's lung, which could explain her decline in PFTs. There was no definitive pathologic evidence of scleroderma cardiac involvement. But it's possible that the patient already had microvascular dysfunction due to longstanding scleroderma and was therefore more sensitive to the dysfunction induced by amyloid deposition. So, overall, a really challenging case, and I think one that we can all learn from.
5: Thanks, Lloyd, for going through that. You know, this was just such a challenging case. And I think we owe it to ourselves, we owe it to this patient and this patient's family to try to think through. How can we use this case to recognize patients that have advanced heart failure, regardless of what the etiology is, earlier in their course? This topic specifically is a challenging one. and so The the question is, among our patients that have chronic heart failure, who are the ones that are the most sick? And by the most sick, I mean with advanced heart failure or stage D heart failure, which is a distinction we make when we don't think that guideline-directed medical therapy alone Or interventions like a CRTD or cardiomems or a mitoclip or other things that are evidence proven will allow for recovery for our patients to not have an unacceptably high rate of morbidity and mortality. These are the patients we specifically think that need a permanent LVAD or a heart transplant. And this is the topic of a recent AHA scientific statement that just came out in the last few months. Just taking a step back, we know that heart failure is a progressive condition. A study that was done in Jack heart failure 2017 with Dr. Javette Butler, the senior author, showed that in a cohort of outpatients with stage C heart failure, 25% of them progressed to stage D or died within a three-year span. And they estimated that 100,000 patients a year progress from stage C to stage D. This highlights how large of a population this really is. And the challenging part is we don't always identify these patients early enough or until it's too late. And so a separate study that was done in this year, 2021, in the Journal of Cardiac Failure was a multi-center retrospective analysis of referral patterns for ALVAD and transplant. And of the 515 patients they studied, they specifically found that 60% of the referrals for these advanced therapies were coming from patients that were admitted to the hospital, patients that were inpatients. So clearly they were sick enough to require hospital admission. And of those 515, 40% were declined for advanced therapies. They weren't eligible to get an LVAT or a transplant because of specifically how sick they were. It makes you think if we would have found them earlier in their disease course, then we could have offered them these potentially life-saving therapies. So how do we do that? I, I urge you guys to read this guideline document that's really important, but there is a mnemonic that we often use that's very helpful. It's the I need help mnemonic. And going through the letters within the I Need Help mnemonic, I stands for inotropes. N stands for NYAJ class 3 or 4. E stands for end organ damage. The second E stands for very low EF, typically less than 20%. The D stands for defibrillator shocks. H stands for greater than one hospitalization in 12 months. The next E stands for edema, despite escalating doses of diuretics. The L stands for low blood pressure. And P stands for progressive intolerance of GTMT, specifically because of hypotension. So this is a mnemonic that lists a bunch of characteristics, findings that we may see, signs and symptoms that we may see in our patients that should make us think, is this individual headed towards advanced heart failure? Well, we need to think about an albender transplant. You know, the schema really isn't perfect. There's the definitions for these conditions are not perfect. So this is certainly an area that we need more research in.
1: Well, and Josh, I just want to say thank you so much for raising this really important point because if you're seeing a patient in your heart failure clinic and staffing with Dr. Wilcox, you guys know what the right thing to do is. You know, it's sometimes obviously even for an expert recognizing early signs can be challenging. But the truth is a vast majority of patients with heart failure are seen not by a heart failure and transplant specialist, but they're seen by you know, other cardiologists, general cardiologists, they're seen by primary care doctors, family practitioners, ED physicians and all of our multidisciplinary teammates out there. And so I think just knowing when to refer to somebody like yourself and Loi to consider advanced heart failure therapies, I think is so invaluable and relevant for everyone involved in the care of the heart failure patient. So Thank you so much for raising that.
5: I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I just want to end this case by reiterating from all of us on this podcast, Loi and Graham and from the rest of the Northwestern staff that took care of this patient, that we really want to honor the life of this patient And we owe it to this patient and their family to use this information to try to learn from. But we can't forget that this is is a real individual that lost their life far too early. So we just want to say those final words. Josh, that's very profound. And
3: obviously, we're thinking a lot about this patient as we go forward. And as we assess our patients that come in with cardiogenic shock or even progressive heart failure and just thinking about them in this way and now adding another diagnosis to the things that we think about when we approach patients, especially if the diagnosis isn't clear, despite the usual basic testing that we'll do for our patients with ischemic and non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. So with that, I'd like to thank you all for coming on here, presenting that case so that we could learn and think about this patient. We'll be definitely coming back to Chicago to learn more from all of you. So thank you.
4: Thanks so much. We really enjoyed being a part of this great conversation and presenting this really fascinating and challenging case.
5: Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having us on. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys.
6: And now for the ECPR, I'm thrilled
4: to introduce Dr. Yasmin Raza. Dr. Raza is an advanced heart failure and transplant specialist at Northwestern University with an academic interest in pulmonary hypertension. She's beloved by fellows, and we are so excited that she is able to join us today to discuss this case.
6: All right. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. Now, before we get started, I just wanted to take a moment to thank the entire CardioNerds team for including our program and allowing us to join this incredible podcast you have put together. Daniel and Amit, truly amazing work on your part, and we are very excited for the opportunity to participate. So getting started with our case now. Loi, Graham, and Josh did an excellent job summarizing and taking us through all of the intricacies of this highly complex case. I have just a few take-home pearls I would like to re-emphasize. First of all, during the course of the case review, we discussed how to recognize advanced heart failure and therefore determine appropriate timing for referral to an advanced heart failure specialist. Now, this can certainly be a challenging and nuanced undertaking and is an ongoing topic of discussion in the heart failure world. In fact, Dr. Alana Morris and colleagues recently published an excellent paper on this very subject in circulation, and I highly encourage our listeners to read it at their leisure. When thinking about advanced heart failure, various governing bodies— including in the United States and Europe, have delineated various clinical, echocardiographic, as well as hemodynamic parameters for the identification of advanced stage D heart failure. As mentioned, the I Need Help mnemonic is an excellent tool to recall many of these clinical clues. The name of the game here is really recognizing patients who should be considered for advanced therapies, such as LVAD and transplant. Namely, patients who do have refractory symptoms, but before they have progressed to the point of irreversible end-organ damage, including kidney and liver failure, as well as profound deconditioning and cardiac cachexia, any of which could preclude their candidacy with regards to advanced therapies. Now, Josh Very nicely outlined each of the individual components of the mnemonic. So I would just like to take a few minutes to highlight in further detail a few of the components. So I'll start with the I in the I need help mnemonic, which is for IV inotropes. So what does that mean for our patients? Well, looking back to data from rematch, the landmark study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001, Which was comparing LVAD to optimal medical therapy. About two thirds of those patients were on inotropes. And what we saw is in the medical therapy group, one year survival was very poor at 25%, with two year survival being dismal at 8%. Furthermore, additional published data has also shown poor prognosis among this patient population with a median survival of only nine months. So the takeaway message here is patients on inotropic support have advanced heart failure, and it's very important for both patients and providers to recognize and really understand this poor prognosis and to discuss referral to an advanced heart failure center where they could undergo evaluation for therapies such as LVAD and heart transplant. Now, moving on, what about our patients who are not on inotropic support? Well, some of the other components of the I-need-help mnemonic can be more subtle and occur insidiously. For instance, patients who are not tolerating guideline-directed medical therapy. These patients can experience a gradual down titration of their medications over time, And so, reviewing that history and really pinning down the trajectory of medication doses and tolerance is very important. Finally, with regards to the mnemonic, I wanted to touch on heart failure hospitalization. Many of us have come across the frequent flyer heart failure patients and You know, we work them up during the admission as to the etiology or trigger for the decompensation, be it ischemia, arrhythmia, and so on. And then the patients are diuresed, optimized, and discharged. But we really shouldn't stop there. If we notice this revolving door of heart failure admission, discharge, and then readmission, it's important to pause take a step back and think about what this means for the patient in the bigger picture and in terms of prognosis. So to go into a little more granular detail, data shows that patients with two prior heart failure admissions in the past one year represent a very high-risk population for poor outcomes, including a one-year mortality over 40%. All right, so moving on, the second major point that I wanted to discuss was emphasizing a concept which Loe was alluding to with the competing principles of Occam's razor and Hickam's dictum, with the latter applying to our case. And so, you know, a good rule of thumb in medicine in general, but especially in very complex cases such as this one is the importance of maintaining a broad differential and ensuring we have effectively rolled out other potential etiologies for an illness. So in this case, cardiomyopathy with resultant heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Now, as mentioned, this was an extremely challenging case for multiple reasons. First of all, some of the clinical clues we routinely utilize, which increase suspicion for amyloidosis, comprise the identification of multi-organ involvement, including neuropathy, renal disease, and GI disease, thereby increasing suspicion for a systemic disease process. While our patient already had a confirmed diagnosis of systemic sclerosis, a disease which can also Lead to multi organ system involvement. Additionally, she ended up having a very rare form of amyloid in that there was only vascular involvement. So, not only was there the presence of another systemic disease, which can lead to cardiomyopathy along with clinical features of multi organ involvement, the typical clues for amyloidosis that are typically seen on imaging were also missing as Loi discussed in detailed review of the cardiac MRI and echocardiogram. Importantly though, the imaging findings were nonspecific, as she discussed, and scleroderma was not definitively confirmed as the etiology of her cardiomyopathy. So perhaps at that point, going back to the differential diagnosis and including broader testing would have been beneficial. As we know, with cardiomyopathy diagnosis, Imaging, including echocardiogram and MRI, are often crucial components, but should complement comprehensive lab and invasive testing. And as we heard, it was ultimately not the imaging findings per se, but lab work with the serum and urine immunofixation electrophoresis and serum-free light chains, which were crucial as his testing revealed a plasma cell dyscrasia which along with the endomyocardial biopsy pathology results confirm the diagnosis of amyloidosis. All right, well, that's all that I have. And again, I um, want to say great job to our fellows. And once again, thank you for the opportunity to join. And we hope to come back again soon for another case discussion. Thank you. Beep. Beep.